0: The scripture reading that the teaching for today is based on is Psalm 116. John McGlinchey, who is a member of the Mercy Team, will read the passage for us.
1: I love the Lord because he has heard my my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. In
0: recent years, uh, I've spoken to a number of people who came to the Christian faith because in a time of desperation, they prayed and God answered their prayer. Uh, And some of these people had been thinking about Christianity, had been visiting church, had been trying to sift through uh, their commitments, what they believe. But what made the difference from just thinking about whether it was true, evaluating it, um, and actually, stepping over the line to saying "I believe i 'm committed to this was seeing the reality of god and and I, I could think of a couple of examples where people found themselves unable to get out of their own difficulties and they prayed, not necessarily knowing who they were praying to and how it worked and God answered their prayer uh, and, and it 's that stepping stepping over the line where, where where we go from just sifting through the information. Uh, deciding whether or not we find it appealing, whether or not it would work for, for us to, to engaging with the reality that, that God is there. Uh, that makes the world of difference. And the skeptic in me, when I hear those kinds of stories of the person who um, came to faith because their prayer was answered, wonder wonders, you know, how do you know it's not just coincidence? <laughs> um, maybe things would have worked out if you didn't pray. Th- those kinds of questions come up um, to anyone, even a committed believer who's trying to evaluate, how do I really know how to understand this? Uh, the pastor in me finds myself thinking, uh, when I hear a story like that, I hope that this person doesn't think this is how the Christian life works automatically, that, that now you're 100% safe and will never have troubles because if you just call out to God, God is there and God will always answer your prayers. And so even though as those thoughts come up to me it reminds me how important it is that faith is not abstract or just ideology but that that really it's a component of love for God. And as a church we've been talking about love for a number of weeks now and we've been fo- we're we're talking about four different relationships God within ourselves others in the world and we're finishing today a section on talking about love for God. And one of the things that I've been saying is is that the power of the Christian message is about God's love for us. That's really, um, once we can grasp that, that that does start changing us. But we sometimes don't appreciate how important it is that we love God. It's one thing just to hear that God loves us. But but unless we respond uh, with faith and hope, unless we we start to appreciate that this is not just an idea, but, but God actually has done something that, that changes the reality of our lives. If we're not doing that, then the Christian life can be burdensome. The commandments of Christianity uh, will feel just like rules. Um, Or the idea that Christianity offers a hopeful vision could seem like it's a fantasy, just a dream, just comforting words. Uh, But once we, once we make that move to, to love for God, we find that that the Bible or the teachings of the Bible, we start to get a coherence. Things start to come together. And so today I want to continue talking about that, about the importance of of love for God. Uh, And where I'm going to begin is with love for the one who is watching. So that's where we're going to begin, with love for God, love for the one who is watching. Um, In our circumstances, maybe we're constantly evaluating, how do I know if God loves me? (laughs) And when things are good, we have uh, a certain conviction that God must love us. And when things are not, then either God isn't loving or God doesn't love me. Um, but then th- that creates a bit of a spiritual roller coaster. We could have a firmer foundation when we realize that that God's love for us is not always tied to the circumstances we can see. And one of the things we see from Psalm 116 is that this person loves God. That's where he begins in verse one. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. and Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. His love for God is because he realized God, God was real and God acts in the world, but God acted in his particular life and that gave him something that now he brings to remembrance. And you can see, even as the psalm unfolds, that it seems to be something he holds to. It becomes an anchor that he goes back to in those confusing times. And so he loves the Lord um, all the more because he has confidence that, that when, when he prays, when he cries out, <clears throat> God hears him. And and so this this psalm is actually very encouraging to anyone in a difficult situation. And most of us are now stretched. Some of us are... In very difficult circumstances, related to the virus or not, but all of us are being challenged and pushed. And, and It's remarkable to me when, whenever, as a church, we've tried to think of the categories or who are the people in need that we need to make sure we reach out to. I have ordinary conversations with somebody who doesn't fit a category and find that their lives are are majorly disrupted and effective, that, affected. that this this whole the virus and and the uh, the safeguards uh, are really causing hardship for people. And this psalm can be a great encouragement because it's a witness to somebody who says, I was at a desperately low point, and I cried out to God, and God heard me. And so it has that potential to be a witness of, of faithfulness, a reminder of what we may know is true, but we take for granted. The problem, of course, though, is in real time, which is where we live, we're currently in this crisis. We don't know how far in. Is the, will the next two weeks be the peak in New York City? Um, will there be shelter in place in the fall or next winter? Those kinds of things we don't know and how that affects uh, the markets and our jobs and social unrest and any of these factors. Right now, we're in the thick of it. And therefore, Psalm 116, which has the potential to be greatly encouraging, testimony to God who sees and cares and hears, could seem in, 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 in our own managing our own troubles in real life, it could seem to mock us, where we could start to have the thoughts, well, it's good that this writer of the psalm was heard, but here I am crying out, and does God hear me? And it's important that we we recognize that Psalm 116 gives us a snapshot of somebody who was in great desperation and then was brought out of it, and he sees it was God who did this. Um, but you could read this and think that he woke up in the morning having a miserably bad day, and by the evening, he was able to pray this psalm of thanks. And with that assumption, then our weeks, our months, or our years of misery start to feel like, oh, these words don't apply to me. And you forget that this is condensed. This is a condensed narrative that, that if he was in such a place that he, he describes him being in a pit uh, where God saved him, we know he wasn't just in a bad mood. We don't know the circumstances. Um, it sounds to me like he might have been sick. There are some Psalms where clearly they have enemies against them. This could be an illness. We don't know. One interesting thing uh, is that that this Psalm is part of a section from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that was um, typically and is typically sung or recited at the Passover. And so while this is very individual, I love the Lord, it's... it's uh, It's first-person singular. Um, Some think this is the story of of God's people. This is the story of Israel who cried out for God. So you go back to the book of Exodus, and God's people are crying out, and they're not crying out for a few hours. They didn't didn't schedule a, a prayer meeting. It was years and years of calling out in despair as things got worse and unfathomably worse. But then the story says God... God answered their prayers in such a mighty way that, it's, that there's no doubt that it was God who did it. And, and you could cynically read it and think that God was somewhere not paying attention. Maybe God was sculpting uh, the mountains of Australia and New Zealand, uh, and maybe God was, was uh, putting together uh, the coast of Mexico to, to have beautiful vacation spaces for, for people thousands of years later. And in the midst of his distraction... Uh, somebody woke him up to hear the, the cries of his people in Egypt. That's how we tend to think that God works or our suspicions. And yet it's the wisdom of God who, who needs to remain just, who sees his suffering people. But, but we know from that story, he sees and he cares and he acts, even if we find ourselves puzzled, wondering why, why did he wait? And there's so many passages in the Bible. We're going to look at one next week where we, we wonder that question, why did God wait? And we, we don't have the answer to that. But what we know is, but God was not ignoring us. God did not sit there apathetically. It's not that God doesn't know or couldn't act, but somehow in God's wisdom and timing, that's when he acted. And so we get these condensed stories. The book of Exodus, the opening chapters, you could think, again, it was just a, a bunch of laborers that were ready to go on strike because they'd gone to a bad moment. And, and you read the backstory and you realize years of terrible misery And it's these condensed stories that we have to recognize uh, help us in our uncondensed lives. I don't know how many of you uh, who who live in New York City have been inconvenienced by filming uh, TV shows, um, movies. Um, In my neighborhood, they film relatively uh, uh, frequently every three to four months. There's there's some crew on site, sometimes more frequently than that, depending on the season. Um, but if you own a car, it, parking for four days will be miserable. Sometimes I've, I've tried to go down my block and I'm, I'm stopped. I'm not allowed to go down my own block by some uh, someone there that's uh, uh, maybe a volunteer or somebody that's, that's just told to stop people and not given much more instruction. And I've had to go through the terrible inconvenience of having to walk around all the corner, you know, the troubles that New Yorkers have to, to suffer. Uh, so anyway, having to walk around the block, if you could imagine that when, when I've got all my important things to do. And, and yet the payoff, you would think, uh, for all of this that we suffer, uh, the noises of, of the crew at night outside the window, uh, would be at least the joy in watching the TV show. And then you go to the TV show and the clip is like 20 seconds. And you wonder, how on earth do they spend four or five days on my block towing the cars away, putting the cars back, putting these bright lights out, um, mobbing the street for a couple of days, and what you get out of that is fifteen good seconds <laughs> um, it, you know it, we look back at our lives and we, we, we could see our own stories in condensed ways, but but we live with all of the details. And it, it's sometimes hard to, to tell what are the important details? What, what, what's really going to stick with me? What's going to make it into my final story? Um, but Psalm 116 reminds us that that this writer says, I, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. He heard my pleas for mercy. We think that the power in the Psalm is because his his cries were answered. And no doubt, that's it. You know, who of us are are that spiritual to to say, well, it's good just to know that he hears. But if love for God is something that will sustain us, it really is important to say uh, in God's wisdom, I don't know why things are working out and I don't need to have some naive optimism where I think, well, everything that appears miserable must be good in some weird way. We could be honest. We could cry out. We could ask for mercy. We could name our troubles. We can be specific and what we think we want God to do. But if we love God, we want God to be God. We want want God to be wiser than us and more powerful than us. And therefore, it creates that space to also confess our own helplessness and our ignorance and to say, "I, I don't know what should be done, but I know I hate this and here's what I want. But before God answers, if you have confidence that God hears you, that God is not ignoring you, that God's not doing something more important, but that he, he watches with care. It's not simply to know that God loves us, but, but to seek God in love radically changes our experience. It helps us get through our confusion. It helps us when we don't know what's happening and when we don't know what God is doing. And so um, love for the one who is watching will be really important uh, in our experience. It's something we need at this time. So here's the second thing. As we talk about love for God, I want to talk about love for the one in whom we rest. And so how, how are you being affected by this particular time period? Some people are prone to anxiety, and maybe this just um, causes another stirring up of anxiety. This is a time where I suspect a lot of people that may not be prone to it or may not have a history of, of panic attack or a or diagnosable um, uh, disorder, will still find themselves unable to sleep, restless, worried, uh, unable to focus on particular projects and tasks. I think for a number of reasons, that's just part of, of this season we're in. Um, and that sense of restlessness, um, knowing that love for God is something that that brings a sense of peace to our souls, it doesn't make our troubles go away, it doesn't make us superheroes who are able to withstand all things. But we do need to have a resting point, especially when when life around us has been changed. So our structures, our routines, the things that we normally do, those of us who are able to be proactive in caring for ourselves and just can't. We can't in the same way. And now we're feeling it. It's a reminder that that maybe our our fitness routine or our eating properly or uh, being able to to break our our lives into these one-hour units where we move around to different places or whatever strategies you use and should use, where we recognize that they're wise, but at the end of the day, these things don't sustain us in real difficulties. These difficulties are a reminder, if we love the Lord who hears our cries for mercy, that there is a resting place. And so in verses six and seven, we read, the Lord preserves the simple. When, when I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And here's the person who remembers that there was a time in the past where I called out to God and he helped me. And, and now I'm calling my own soul. Part of my prayer life is, is to speak into the depths of my soul. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest. There's the, the realization uh, in my restlessness that that the things that i 've been depending on in the near term are failing me, and so so let me let me go deeper and verses ten and eleven are quite interesting. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars that alarm, that sense of being completely surprised uh, and then, in that surprise, you find yourself cynically looking at those around you. And and maybe that comes because you're really genuinely disappointed. You can't trust people. But sometimes it's your anxiety speaking. I said in my alarmed, all mankind are liars. There's nobody who's who's being truthful. Nobody. They say they're going to help me. They say they like me. They say all of these things. And because I was alarmed, because I was brought low, I didn't see it. But verse 10 gives an interesting window into what it looks like to navigate that by faith. There seems to be this surprise. See, verse 11 is not surprising. You know, people disappoint you, or even if they don't disappoint you, but you're disappointed and you, you resent others, that's, that's a natural response. Even if you rationally could say, that was my emotion getting the best of me, or, or I didn't really understand what was going on. But verse 10 seems to have this surprise that even while I said I'm greatly afflicted, even in my self-pitying. Or even in my cries to God, I'm, I'm greatly afflicted, I believed. <laughs> and it's that realization where, where something interesting happens where where those who know Jesus and are following Jesus find that in difficult times, sometimes they come to places of greater contentment and ins- assurance because the things that they had been hoping practically and are failing them, and the thing functionally Um, that they've they've looked to for meaning is not providing meaning, then the ideology that we held on to, well, I know that if Jesus has been raised from the dead and if my sins are forgiven and if God loves me, I'm okay, those things are unreal. But as everything else is failing and being stripped away, it could be so encouraging to, to be surprised in the midst of a complaint towards God to say I'm greatly afflicted, to have some sense that in the midst of crying out, you find yourself believing because that faith itself lands you with what gives hope, which encourages you that it's not just that I have an idea that God loves me, but, but if I love him, well, then my, my soul can return to a place of rest. My, my restlessness can be managed to a certain degree. And so verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. And it's that encouragement that when a life gets complicated— um, sometimes there's a switch. I find when life is simple, it gives me the freedom to do the theological reading, to understand the depths of God in this world that I can't figure out. And then you try to do that level of thinking when you can't figure anything out in the world. You have no idea, will any of us have jobs in two weeks? That's not the time to, to talk about the incommunicable attributes of God <laughs> or some other uh, profound th- uh, theory. It's, it's, it's at that time, the simplicity, when you realize I'm not in control, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Do I wear a mask? Not wear a mask. Can I go shopping? Should I not go shopping? Can I hug my kids goodnight? Uh, The kinds of questions where basic things you don't know in the midst of your affliction, the simple, the one who says, I know nothing, finds encouragement in their love for God. Even when I cried out, I'm greatly afflicted. Somebody help me. I don't know what to do. I believed, even when I spoke. And if we have love for God, we find that that actually then becomes uh, a resting place for the restless. And so, so as we think about what can we do practically, I, I, over the last couple of weeks, I've been saying one of the opportunities in this, not an opportunity we chose and not an opportunity that comes easy, but, but the reality is circumstantially we're being distanced. We can't, we can't show up at our workplace. We can't just go and, and, and with our laptop to the, to the coffee shop for two hours. We can't just call a friend to come over and, and hang out with us on the couch. Uh, the things that we would normally do, we can't do. Uh, and that's going to affect us because we're relational beings. We need connection. Um, but during social distancing, I want to make sure we're not practicing theological distance, distancing. Uh, the, the the opportunity for us now is to say, you know, I've neglected prayer. The Bible has just been too hard to read and I, and I haven't been listening to God's word. And so what I want to encourage is a revival of, of personal devotion, of, of seeking the Lord himself for comfort, of resting in him, of realizing this is a season where I've wandered, I've strayed, uh, and now the Lord is calling me back, and I'm not enjoying the call. I'm crying out. I'm greatly afflicted. But if you believe in the midst of that. So, so, he, so here's, here's um, something that may help you this week in terms of your prayer. Um, let's be honest. Prayer can be hard. And there's a variety of ways to pray. And when when we're told pray without ceasing, one way to pray is to pray frequent, short prayers. I want to encourage that, to have that be part of your life. Uh, And maybe now is the time where that's really how you have to be praying because you're a bit frenetic. But I want to encourage you to practice the discipline of a more slow, contemplative form of being still. And the reason I want you to practice that is because right now being cut off from our routines, um, the boredom at home where you run out of things to do, uh, what you wind up doing is going, go to the things that, that are stimulating. We're looking for dopamine. <laughs> We're looking for something to, to just wake us up and feel something. Um, and what happens is then we wind up passing hours of binging on shows or searching the web, or going through social media. All of those things are fine but they're free. They're feeding the restlessness. You have to understand that, that outside of the healthy routines. uh, And this is where, you know, these days, some people have these, uh, there's theories about how the mind works where where there's a system one and a system two. Daniel Kahneman made this popular uh, in terms of thinking slow and fast, but there's the idea that, that we have this mode of thinking that we think quickly and responsively and intuitively, but there's also um, deeper reflective thinking right now a lot of us are functioning entirely in system one um, because we're wanting to know, if I read through 15 more headlines, will there be some nugget of information that's been, that I've missed that will help me? Uh, and, and that frenetic thinking that, that moving quickly has us in the mode where maybe the best you can do is pray these one sentence prayers once, once, a, once a minute. And so don't feel guilty if you can't take that time. But I think what your soul needs, and your biology is probably in agreement with this, is to be still and to have that time where, where you actually prioritize and say, I am going to take five minutes, 20 minutes, one hour, whatever you think uh, works with you, whatever would be ambitious, but not guilt causing if you can't do it. But where you say, you know what? Uh, the headlines will still be there when I'm done. Uh, the, the social media feed will still be there when I'm done. Can I be still as the scripture invites me, be still and know that I'm God. Um, and it's interesting, one of the differences sometimes articulated between Eastern meditation and Western Christian-informed meditation is that is in that Eastern religions, the idea is you empty your mind, but in Christianity, you fill your mind. We're not getting to a place of nothing, but we're getting to a place of fullness. I think that it, that aspect of fullness is really important. But I do want to say that sometimes we neglect, because of that, the value of, of emptying, and sometimes, uh, or I would say particularly at a time like this, going into a time of deep, meaningful prayer can be hard. And while we're in the system one moving around, we avoid what's hard and it creates the cycle. We just go to what's going to stimulate us and give us something to keep the dopamine going so we feel like we're doing okay. Um, but we know that it's feeding our anxiety. And so, so what I want to suggest is maybe you prioritize first thing in the morning, uh, before or after a meal, late in the day, do whatever works with, with what your rhythms are. But you sit down and, and you commit not simply to praying right away, but to, to taking the things that you can't get out of your mind. Oh, wait a second. Um, I, I haven't checked the New York Times yet, or at least in the last 20 minutes. Um, part of the emptying is just moving it out of the center of your life and putting it up on a shelf and say, you know, it's 7 a.m. now. I'll check it at 9 a.m. So I don't need to think about it. So let me let me move it out and put it there. Um, and there are the emails that I'm wondering if anything came in and and they're important and I'll get to them. So let me, let me not ignore them, but let me just make the choice to to move them away to 1030 and sort of clear some space out. So then when you're ready to start praying, you could call yourself to return your soul to the one in whom you can rest. And then just to be still, to to know that God is there before you speak. And then, um, even as you bring your complaint to God, your concerns, that then you would find yourself um, resting in him, having faith in him. So I I offered that to you as a paradigm. I think for some of you, it will really benefit. Uh, Some of you, that's just not going to work. At this time, maybe you're too anxious and, and, and you just need to find some other way of praying. That's okay. But I would say try it. Try sitting down and taking the things in your mind and setting them apart and saying if the most important thing is that that the Lord looks down on me with care and that I would love the Lord, let me sit in that as I start to think about what's really important, what do I really need now? And I'm gonna bring that to God. So rather than the quick list of all the things, let me discover in the presence of God what I really need. I wanna encourage that. Encourage you to be with with God in that way. Here's the third and last thing uh, as we talk about love for God. I want to encourage you to love the one who gives and and this is where the mutuality of love that we know God loves us, but, but our loving God is also important because it means there's a dynamic living relationship. It's not just about an idea that God has given us. It's not just that we have certain duties to God. um, But a sense where you can say verse one, I I love the Lord. He hears my pleading. I have needs and and I look to God and I cry out to him in those times and, and I trust that he cares But also, God has a mission, and and when I go through my life, I I do things that would honor the Lord. And that relationship is one where where we need to to, to try to remain. And so this question in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? that word render, um, it's actually the same Hebrew word as the word return that we saw back in in verse 7. my soul should reach. So, so what should I render to the Lord? Well, first we render ourselves. What, what do we return to God? First we return. That's, that's the language of repentance. We, we realize we've wandered off. Maybe it's in some huge moral way or maybe it's just in some distracted way of looking to the next thing. We catch ourselves anxious, overwhelmed, convicted. Well, what shall I render to the Lord? So first render your heart, return. O oh my soul to the Lord. But now he's asking, having done that, having returned and started resting in God, well, what can I give to God for all that he's given me? That's verse 12. Um, and this is where you find that, that joy in the Christian life comes partly by meditating on God's provision. In need, the Lord provided but part of it is also in the joy uh, of saying, but what has the Lord provided for me that I can, I can give? Which is why there's an instinct in many of us at this time, who needs help? The desire to help, it could be a problematic distraction from, from the fact that we need help, but it could also be an impulse of those who are being filled, of wanting to share. And it's that joy that is part of the Christian life that, that we could have even now as we take note, what has the Lord given me? And anchored in that hope, well, what can I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What what can I do now, even in these limitations? Which then takes us out of our time of prayer with a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of of mission. I remember when I was young, I I was so young that I don't remember how old I was. I'm guessing this was in the four to six or seven range, but, but my memory is fuzzy. But I remember something very specific. Uh, one of the things I don't remember, it was an occasion, I don't remember if it was Christmas or a birthday, but what I do remember is I wanted to give a present to my mother. And I was young enough that I, I, I don't know if I had savings or I, I don't know what resources I had, but somehow, and I forget how the conversation uh, unfolded, but somehow the situation came up that my mother took her to a store, uh, took me to a store to shop with her, um, where I can go through the store, and she introduced me, there was, a, there was the cashier woman, and um, basically said that that I was going to pick something out uh, and that uh, my mother should not know about it. And she would take it and she would wrap it and simply ring it up and my mother would pay for it. And and I look back as an adult and I realize all of the things that, that I did not have any awareness of at the time, which is, um, you know, there's a certain sense, what, what was I really giving to my mother? I, I wasn't paying for it. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to the store on my own, and I don't know that I could have found it. So, so, so I got there because my mother brought me there. <laughs> my mother made the choice to, to introduce me to the cashier, to walk away, to help me. I look back as a cynical adult and suspect you might have whispered something to the cashier to steer my choices. But at the time, as I managed the sovereignty of my mother and the freedom of myself, uh, my memory is that I found something I really wanted her to have. But I look back and I realize, you know, as a young person, there are so many things about... About the way your existence is that, that you don't understand. But what I remember was joy of, um, of, of wanting to do something for my mother and the satisfaction, not just in that moment, but but the weeks after <laughs> hey, are you gonna wear that? <laughs> um, you know, taking joy that that in all of the things that, you know in my home and that my mother wears, there's something I gave to her. And, um, part of my mother's care for me was to enable me to give something to her. It's, it's remarkable that my mother had given me everything that I had, including the opportunity to give her something. But I took for granted all of these things, and yet the source of joy was the ability to return <laughs> to something to her. And it's that love for the Lord that as, as you deepen in your faith, where it comes with our simplicity, that you realize We don't understand very much about ourselves or our world. We don't understand much about God. We are are not in control. There are all these things that the realizations normally overwhelm us. They crush us. They make us feel defeated. They make us feel unworthy. They make us feel hopeless. If the love for God is real in us and it's stirring a love for God from us, it creates a simplicity that allows us to navigate these kinds of circumstances to say, I don't know, but I'm going to see what the Lord has given. And I'm going to take what he's given and, and give back to him. And so, so here, here's some language from, from the passage. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. What, what can I render to the Lord? I'm going to take the cup of salvation that he gave to me, And I'm going to lift it up in his his name. Don't we do that still when we're having a a party or a celebration? Somebody invites us into their home and they make a nice meal, and somebody will raise a glass and they'll toast that person. Uh, Does that repay all the hours and the expense? No, but there's something about honoring. Uh, So we're going to lift our glasses to John, who made this great meal. Um, I'm going to lift up the cup of salvation. Um, Something practical for us to do. What what do we do? And here's a way to think about it this week. Uh, you know, it's not coincidental that in the calendar, Passover and Easter coincide. Um, in Jesus's day, they happen simultaneously. The, the last meal, the last supper was, was a Passover meal, and then Jesus was crucified, and he was raised during the Passover season on Easter. In 2020, Passover is the week after Easter, just because of the two calendars. Um, but, but Passover and Easter uh, work together. Uh, In the Passover meal, there are a number of cups that that are are lifted and raised and and drank from. Uh, There are four, actually. And we don't know exactly what the practices when Jesus observed the Passover himself were. One speculation is that he sang Psalm 116. We don't know that. But but, but the Gospels tell us that after the meal, they, they got up and they sang a song, and then they went so he could go to the Garden of Gethsemane. An educated guess would be he sang from something in Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, if not all of it, part of it. It's possible he sang the psalm. We don't know. Um, but we know that he lifted up at least one cup uh, at the Passover meal. We don't know that he lifted up four, but, but in, in, in uh, the way that Judaism evolved, the four cups, this comes from Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7, which, are not, which is not about the Passover meal, but there are these four statements that, that each cup represents. The first, the cup of sanctification, where it says, I will bring you out from under the burden of, G- of Egypt. The second cup, the cup of deliverance, I will rescue you from your bondage. Uh, the third cup, the cup of redemption or the cup of salvation, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And fourth, the cup of praise, I will take you as my people. Biblical scholars speculate that if Jesus was, was uh, following that pattern, it's, it was the third cup, likely the cup of salvation, the cup of redemption, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm that he picked up when he said, um, now this is the cup, the blood of the new covenant. I drink of this, all of you for the forgiveness of sins in remembrance of me. And so he lifts up that cup of salvation, the cup of redemption that his people had been drinking for years, saying in our crying out, will the Lord hear us? Will he come and deliver? And he tells his disciples, tell the people who believe in me in the future to assemble and to lift up the cup of redemption and to remember me. And then they go out and they sing a psalm. I don't know if it was Psalm 116 or not, but he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he starts to to groan in agony because he realizes that, that the biblical prophecy was not just that there was a cup of salvation that he would bring to his people, but there was a cup of wrath and a cup of anger that was waiting, that you see in the prophetic writings, several of the Old Testament writings say that God, in his anger at what he sees, will pour out his anger. And Jesus says, Father, take this cup from me, Um, In his crying out uh, to the one who had the power to give or take life, he realized for him to come and give the cup of salvation, he needed to drink from the cup of wrath. And what we're told is that cup was poured out on Christ so that that cup of salvation would be poured out on his people. The spirit of Jesus was committed to the father as he gave up his life. And the Holy Spirit was committed to rest on his people as Jesus poured out salvation. And it's that reality to say when Jesus was with his disciples at that last supper, saying the time of fulfillment has come, here's the third cup, the third cup of redemption, that afterwards, how could the, the years after the disciples who were with Jesus then at that fourth cup of praise, <laughs> not lifted it in remembrance of Christ to say that everything that has been fulfilled uh, has come through Jesus. And so even now, whether or not we're, we're actually sitting at a Passover meal, whether or not we're, we're distant enough that we can't even take communion as we normally would at this time, we ask that question, what shall I re- render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Um, and one answer is, I-, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Uh, he has brought salvation to my life, and, and I-, I, will, I will put that up f- uh, in the forefront of my life as something for which I'm grateful, something which is an anchor something that cannot be taken from me because it has been given to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But God in his grace gave it to me. And now what can I do? I, I haven't earned it, but I could, I could lift it up and, and render thanks to God. I could, I could rejoice in the salvation God has given me. And so I want to encourage you. Verse 9 says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He's given us life today. Walk with God. Uh, walk with the spirit of gratitude. But verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Here's what I want to end with. Uh, these days, uh, it seems that everyone is cluing into the importance of thanksgiving. Even on a secular um, uh, analysis of what do human beings fundamentally need? We, we need thanksgiving. Of course, this is a major theme in the Bible. Um, being thankful is important. And it makes a big difference to go from, from feeling like I'm overwhelmed with all that I don't have to taking note of what you have and being thankful for it. But what our culture in general prescribes is that we have have an existence of of thanksgiving, a posture where where that's just who I am. That's my being. I am a thankful person. But it's impersonal. Uh, What Christianity does, pulling us deeper to actually really having a life of thanksgiving, it it says, don't just be a thankful person, but be thankful to a person. (laughs) Um, Be thankful to God. And that's where that uh, that, that, that uh, very memorable phrase from this psalm, uh, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a reminder as we call out to God, God does not think of our lives as cheap. Precious in the Lord, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He values our lives. He, if somebody suffers and languishes and dies, it's not because God didn't care. Uh, but God watches over those and, and he values those who hope in him. But we have the opportunity now to look back at Christ and say, precious in the eyes of the saints is the death of the Lord. And is that cup of salvation to say there's something precious that we take hold of that we could be thankful for. And so we're not just being thankful, but we're, we're being thankful to God, who has given to us far and above what we need and a hope that can't be taken from us. And so as I encourage you to to, to to have a a life of praise, even in the midst of your suffering. You're going to need to call your soul to return. You're going to need to quiet your mind. You may need to be still, but you need to remember that God pours out his grace. And let your cup be filled and lift it up and toast the Lord and, and, and offer him the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I want to encourage you to do that. Practice that and practice it as you walk with God. And I'm going to pray for us that we might find ways to do it right now when, when we don't know how to practice anything. Uh, let's practice remembering the Lord has heard us and hears us. Let's remember that God gives us salvation. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, as we assemble as a people, um, even perhaps confused by how to navigate the nature of an online meeting, it's a reminder that that we're in new territory. And that makes some of us anxious. It makes some of us fearful. It gets some of us angry. It it deflates some of our enthusiasm. And yet, Lord, you are unchanging. Your promises never fail. And just as much as we have always needed your grace and forgiveness and you provided it through Christ, so also when we need your mercy, um, we believe that you hear us when we ask for it. And so we love you, Lord, because you hear our cries for mercy. You, you hear our pleading. And we join with those who are pleading this week with cries of despair, with cries of horror, with cries of being overwhelmed. We know some of us are being affected more than others. We remember in our community the despairing and the ill and those in pain, uh, those with worry, those whose faith is showing itself to be weak. We pray that you would strengthen faith by the power of your spirit. We pray you'd strengthen bodies, souls, and minds. We pray that you would Show this week, as we remember the death of Christ, but also his resurrection, that you do give new life and that your mercies are new every morning. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to lift up the cup of salvation and return thanks to you. And I pray that everyone here would, would not simply have an attitude of thanks, but would have a relationship where they know your love and love you so that they could be thankful to you for any ways that you provide and show your faithfulness this week. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.